This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me, as always, is a man who describes food and stuff as a discount food outlet, equidistant from his home and his work. Here is the captain. And I like to ride my bike to both of them. It's good to be seen and good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. Today we are still sipping on this fantastic, totally crushable Highland Brewing beer that they are calling this a fruit beer. I think it's very much an ale with really great peach flavor added. Perfect for spring. And of course, we love the great folks at Highland Brewing Company, one of the very best in the beer biz. Garage grade three and three quarter bottle caps out of five. And let's give some cheers to some of our friends who are the very best in their biz. First up, a cheers to Brandy in Fort Worth, Texas. And a big shout out to Megan and Alexandria, Virginia. And here's a cheers to Tyler in San Marcos, California. And a big We Like Your Jib to Shelby T and Parts Unknown. Next up, here's a We Like Your Jib to Melissa in Mount Airy, Maryland. And last but certainly not least, we have Pamela in Nicholasville, Kentucky. Everyone we just mentioned, They went to our website, truecrimegarage.com, and they clicked on the beer fund and helped us out with this week's beer run. And for that, we are very grateful. Yeah, B-W-E-W-R-U-N, beer run. Make sure you're following us on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or the TikTok. It's, It's just Nick doing TikTok dances all the time. But it's a good way to get more information about what we are doing, some behind the scenes stuff, and also when we're posting photos about what we're talking about on the cases. That's where we post some social media. So make sure you follow us on one of those at True Crime Garage. And Colonel, that is enough of the BFS. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime.
Welcome to our little garage show where we left off yesterday, Captain. We started to get into some dicey business here of some missing money and how it might be tied to our victim, Jonathan Luna. It's $36,000. That's a lot of rolling papers. That was the amount that had been produced in court as evidence in connection with a bank robbery trial that Jonathan prosecuted in September of 2002. At the trial's conclusion, we have Jonathan. We know he's very successful. He won a conviction against the defendant for a series of violent bank robberies in Baltimore County. But at the end of this trial, this money disappeared. Right. So what we have is $36,000 in cash, three shrink wrapped stacks of tens and $20 bills that disappeared somewhere between the courtroom and the government storage area used to hold sensitive evidence during trials. Per the Sun newspaper, Jonathan had signed an agreement with other lawyers in the case that all exhibits had been properly returned. As the lead prosecutor, though, Jonathan was reportedly one of the people that would have had access to that money. This sounds very suspicious, right? $36,000 missing, and it sounds like it's on his watch. Yeah, a lot but, of cheddar. But I want to point out some, some things here before we go too far into this missing money situation. We have many other people that were involved in this situation that were suspect, suspected as well. And not for any real good reason. I don't know that Jonathan Luna's suspected for any good reason other than he had access to the money, just like these other people. So these other people were saying, look, it was on a handcart in a federal building. Anyone could have taken that money. In fact, the Post reported Jonathan was troubled because it happened on his watch, said Joseph Evans, Jonathan's supervisor at the time, but goes on to say, quote, but personally, I have a hard time thinking he stole the money. Evans pointed out that the money was left unattended at times, leaving, quote, so many opportunities for so many people to snag it, end quote. Well, basically, they're saying you're becoming a suspect because you had access and therefore there's a ton of suspects. Correct. And I, for me personally, it's hard for me to believe that Jonathan Luna took this money or, or was involved with others that may have taken this money. I do want to point out some some issues here, though, too. When we covered the Sean Souter case, we pointed out a lot of the corruption that was going on, suspected or otherwise, in the Baltimore PD. And look, I'm a blue blood. I have the backs of the police, and I applaud them when they're good, and I also smear them when they're bad. There are some people that are just bad at their jobs. Well, right. We've seen some problems in the Baltimore Police Department. And if you don't want to believe me, that's fine. You can watch the show We Own This City on HBO that's coming out April 25th. That's all about the Sean Souter case and other things going on in Baltimore PD at the time. You have to point out what's wrong with these bad cops because those bad cops are giving a bad name to all the good cops. Correct. Now, there's one aspect of this part of the story that does look bad for Jonathan. At least five government employees took polygraph tests about this theft. Now, per the son, before his death, Luna had postponed an appointment to take a polygraph test but about the missing money. But we do have a colleague who says, look, I took the polygraph test. I spoke to him, and he didn't have any concerns about or didn't 
voice them to me about taking the polygraph test, saying that I know he was willing to take the test. Yeah, so so something might have came up in his schedule, and now we're going to throw him under the bus and say, well, he must be guilty because he postponed the the polygraph test. He may have just been busy with his job, with, with trials and such. I do think that the rescheduled polygraph exam was to be shortly after his death. So I don't like the timeline there. Um, Some more circumstantial evidence that maybe he had an interest in taking this money or did in the course of the investigation of his murder, investigators discovered that Jonathan had filled out an online loan application for $30,000 around September of 2002. And according to the son, the loan application was canceled not long after this money went missing. Mm, that's so th- a little suspicious. That doesn't look good. A little fishy. One source also said that investigators discovered after Jonathan Luna's death that more than $10,000 came into his possession shortly after the evidence from the robbery case disappeared. They don't seem to know where this money came from or can't conclusively determine how Jonathan Luna and his family obtained this money. Right. And we also want to be clear that there's no evidence of a friend or family members coming forward and saying, hey, we're the ones that were responsible for them getting those $10,000. Correct. We do have plenty of friends and family members and colleagues coming forward saying, we don't think he would have taken the money. It doesn't make any sense. Then there was the sexy stuff. The Baltimore Sun's unnamed law enforcement official source told the paper that the federal agents reviewing Luna's case and his Justice Department computers had found a trove of adult porn that did not appear to be related to any of the cases that he had ever worked on. And there was more. According to the FBI, they found messages on some internet dating site posted by someone using the name Jonathan Luna. According to the Sun newspaper, it says the author of the messages from April 1997, so this is six and a half years earlier, described him as a discreet 31-year-old married black man seeking a white female sexual partner. Now, it's it gets really difficult to believe that a man as smart as him would use his real name on these dating sites and be married. However... However, we have to point out that the age almost matches up exactly. So no one's ever saying that these profiles were his or that Jonathan Luna used them. They're simply pointing out that we found this from six and a half years before his death of someone using that name on these dating sites. Could be a catfish. It could be something that he's wasn't even aware of. I just saw the other day, uh, one of my friends posted in her stories, multiple Instagram accounts that are using her pictures and, and, and information from her profile. That's some weird. And that's some weird stuff right there. Now we mentioned a February, 2004 news conference at this event. The FBI's assistant director denied a report by CBS news that there was a main suspect in the case, a female agent in the FBI's Baltimore field office. Okay. So they're denying that we have a suspect and we're denying that, Hey, the rumor that the suspect is an FBI agent 
a female FBI agent. They're denying that direct rumor. But the FBI went on to conduct an internal investigation, according to the Washington Post, that stemmed from a complaint by a female agent that investigators were overly aggressive when they questioned her about possible romantic involvement with Jonathan. This was a woman who had worked closely with Jonathan on numerous cases. It's unclear whether she was romantically involved with him, but clearly the FBI thought she was, or there was enough information there for them to really look into it. And she files a complaint against her own saying that they aggressively pursued her and they searched her computers and such without consent. I believe that the FBI did admit some wrongdoing in regard to questioning this woman. It seems like this information would be pointing towards the idea that Jonathan was having an affair or maybe multiple affairs. So the reports that he had at least two entanglements have never been refuted. I don't think they've ever been fully proven though either. But what's key here to me, Captain, is it appears at this point in the investigation that the FBI investigators seem fixated at least by this point on the murder being rooted in a personal matter that this was some type of private dispute or something going on in his life and had nothing to do with the FBI, right. had nothing to do with his line of work directly. But we have these weird unexplained trips to Pennsylvania or explained trips to Pennsylvania, depending on who you believe and how you want to look at it. As part of the probe, investigators were looking into at least two trips that Jonathan made to Pennsylvania in the weeks before his death, and they were trying to figure out whether he went there to actually meet somebody. They stopped at motels along the route and looked at guest registers and surveillance video, inquired at gas stations, and canvassed businesses along this route. But it gets, it gets weirder. As the investigation unfolded, Additional trips to Pennsylvania were uncovered. So on the first anniversary of Jonathan's death, this was reported in the paper that a gas station employee on the Pennsylvania Turnpike said that she saw Jonathan Luna at the gas station late at night about once a month over a six-month period. This was a Sunoco station attendant who worked the midnight shift she told the Post that Jonathan always used a credit card if he bought gas and always paid cash if he bought coffee. She said that she remembers him specifically because he was always sharp dressed and he made small talk with her. She said that he was a very courteous and polite individual. This sharp dressed really goes along with everything we've been told about Jonathan Luna. So it, it would appear to me that she is talking about him. On his profession, he's supposed to dress a certain way. Correct. And even before he went into that line of work, he was always said to have, you know, wear dress shirts and ties and such. Correct. Investigators really couldn't figure out any work-related reason, or at least publicly said they couldn't find any work-related reason that Jonathan went to Pennsylvania. We don't know who he visited, what he did, or really anything else. It's hard to believe that the FBI doesn't know. But at least in the week after his death, one official said, we don't have any indication what the purpose was of the drive. But if he had actually been going to Pennsylvania 
on the regular, that would obviously be quite important to the case and maybe what happened to him. That's where he dies. That's where his body is ultimately found a hundred miles away from Baltimore. Investigators look closely to see if Jonathan had gone to meet up with anybody on the night he died. But again, his cell phone was left at the office. So if he was meeting somebody, he didn't have the ability to talk to anybody or communicate with anybody via phone after leaving his office that night, again, leaving the office for really unexplained reasons. But also it's a way for people not to be able to track your actions through your GPS on your phone. Right. There has been some speculation. People wonder, well, maybe he had some type of burner phone and made sure he had the burner phone. And that's why he kind of forgot his, his regular cell phone. Right. But we don't have any evidence that he had a phone on his person. Correct. When he was found. Correct. No, yeah. Nobody's saying that he had one. It's just simple speculation really at this point. There's no evidence to suggest that he did. His father did say that, Hey, on at least one occasion, they had a conversation about trips to Pennsylvania when uh, Jonathan Luna told his father that he was working on a case. And for that reason, he had to go to Pennsylvania. Now the father did say, look, Jonathan wasn't commonly telling us information about the cases that he was working, which he's not supposed to, and said that, you know, that's really, he'd like to offer up more information, but that was the vagueness of the information that Jonathan related to him. So according to the father and according to what he's saying, his son told him the, these trips were, or at least one of the trips was related to his work. But then we have some other information that's interesting in regard to those trips. So the informant in the case that he was working on at the time of his death was being held in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. So maybe these trips are directly related to that trial that he was working on at the time. Right. Now, do you want to get into this timeline here, Captain? Because one, we cannot overlook it. It's very important. And people will want to know the details of the timeline of that night. But I got to warn everybody, there's gaps. There's blanks that need to be filled in. And I really believe in this case, and like many other cases out there, if you could complete this timeline, well, then we would know what exactly happened to Jonathan Luna that night. Right. So be prepared to take notes, my friends. If you're driving, just pull over and join us for the next 45 <laughs> just minutes. Pull out a piece of paper and some pens. And- All right. So let's start on the, the day that he was killed. On December 3rd at 8.48 p.m., we know that Jonathan went to the office to work on that plea agreements. At 9.06 p.m., Jonathan calls one of the attorneys for the guys that he's going to trial against and tells him, hey, I had to leave the office and go home. He said he would return to his office in the federal courthouse later that evening and finish the documents and fax them to the attorney's office. That call lasted 10 minutes at 9 30 PM. Jonathan left a voicemail for the other attorney in the case saying he would be faxing the plea agreement later that evening at 10 30 PM. Jonathan spoke to one of the attorneys again, promising him the plea agreement before midnight. At 11 p.m., Jonathan was at home at this time. He received that call. We don't know 
who from. He receives the call on his cell phone and told his wife that he had had to go back to the office. You got to believe, right, in 2003 that they would know what number called his cell phone? Yeah. I mean, that doesn't necessarily tell us who called him or what the call was about, but at least the FBI is involved in this thing. Unless they blocked the number or they called 2003, chances of there being a payphone, not great, but did somebody go into a gas station and say, hey, can I use your phone real quick? But nobody seems to be disputing that this call happened, right? We don't have, and I know that his family is shut down and not right, been right. talking to the press for the longest time, but we don't seem to have anybody saying that this call didn't happen. So I'm led to believe that it did, and I believe that the FBI probably has some further information on this call, but again, they're not releasing it. Now, according to his father, Jonathan did, did not say who was on the phone that night, but told his wife, quote, honey, I'm sorry, I have to go back to the office, offering up no more, no further information. At 11.38 p.m., Jonathan drove away from the U.S. District Court building in Baltimore. I, I should correct that statement. He, he left. He left the courthouse sometime that night. We don't have anything to say that he was the one physically driving or anybody to dispute that he was driving. Right. At 11.49 p.m., he passed through the Fort McHenry Tunnel toll plaza in Baltimore, northbound on Interstate 95. Now, this is going to lead us past midnight. So now, technically, we are December 4th. At 12.28 a.m., his car passed through the Perryville toll plaza and continued northbound. At 12.46 a.m., his car passed through the Delaware line toll plaza. Again, we have this information because of his easy pass corresponder that is in his vehicle. And thankfully we had that, or we may not know the route that he took or these other stops that seem to have been involved on his weird trip that night. Right. At 12.57 a.m., Jonathan's debit card was used to withdraw $200 from a bank ATM at the JFK Travel Plaza in Newark, Delaware. This is at I-95 Exit 3. Some reports are that the recording is not good and it's not clear whether this is Jonathan using the card. Okay, so they would have surveillance footage of the person using the ATM. And the story has always been that something's wrong or screwy with that footage or with the camera. And so we don't have video confirmation that it is Jonathan Luna using the ATM card. Make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But it's hard to wrap my head around this idea of why would you leave the cell phone behind? Did he forget about this easy pass being able to track him or did he not care if the vehicle was being tracked. It, That's why I wonder if leaving the phone behind was not his choice. Yeah. It was either an accident that he forgot the phone in some kind of hurry to get out of the building, or it's also a possibility that he was abducted from his office. Yeah. But why don't they have, why don't we have some kind of, like I said, technology or, or, or something showing that he actually met somebody there. So what we do have, Captain, is we have surveillance footage of his vehicle leaving the courthouse parking garage, but you cannot see who's driving the vehicle. Right. 
based off of off of the angle. Now, so we got a lot of movements here, and this to me is where things start to get really weird. And part of this just may be my not fully understanding this easy pass and how they work, especially back in 2003, you know, 19 years ago. So that was my nickname in high school, easy pass. Right. At 2.47 a.m., his car entered the Pennsylvania Turnpike exit 359, the Delaware Bridge, going over the Delaware Bridge, but he did not use the easy pass on the New Jersey and Pennsylvania t- turnpikes. I don't know if these things have like a, a proximity limit, you know, mm-hmm. like I, I don't know that an easy pass will just work everywhere that they're required. You know, we're talking about, he's going to other States and, and accessing their turnpikes by this point. Maybe they don't work there. I, w- I would like a better, clearer understanding of that because it seems to me if he's driving, and he's the one making the decisions on where they're going or where he's going that he would just use that pass if he's able to to use it. Yeah, anybody out there that has access or uses one of these easy passes that doesn't just stay within their city but travel with the easy pass, please leave that information on our blog at True Crime Garage. And specify if your information is coming from current day or 2003, because that could have changed over the years. The other thing that I call into question too, and this is something that uh, somebody may know better, is there a chance that his easy pass was issued to him by his work and therefore only worked in certain areas because they don't want to pay for everything. Right, they want to pay for his travels for work purposes, but they don't need him using his Easy Pass two or three states away, if that's even a thing. Right. So what I'm getting at, Captain, is one of two situations is going on. Either he can't use that pass. I guess I should say three. Either he can't use that pass in those locations, or he's choosing not to use that pass in those locations because he doesn't want to be tracked. Again, going back to the idea, maybe he left his cell phone on purpose. Or three, somebody else is calling the shots and is not aware that he has this easy pass or somebody else is driving the vehicle. Remember, we did say that the reports stated that Jonathan Luna's blood was found in the back seat of that vehicle. Is there a chance that at some point somebody intercepted him or he met with somebody, they abducted him, and he's in the back seat while the killer or killers are in control of the vehicle's movements. This leads us to 3.20 a.m. when Jonathan's debit credit card was used at a Sunoco gas station at the King of Prussia, Pennsylvania Service Plaza to buy gas. According to the attendant, it became clear from sales records. This is one of the most bizarre things in the whole thing. It became clear from sales records that Jonathan used his credit card to pay at the pump for his car, but also a second vehicle. And of course, as you all guessed, there was no camera at the gas station. Investigators later seemed to downplay the second gas purchase. All right, let me circle back around to something. Downplay that? Are they downplaying that because they're trying to keep something to their chest and, and they know information that could lead to solving this i'm not trying to point out some big conspiracy theory here but where this becomes an issue is 
and you'll see this as we get further into these details. The FBI seems to believe something, ha- you know, they seem to have a theory that they've locked onto. However, the case is still open. It looks to me like we have a situation where something else may have gone on. Some other people may be up to no good here, that their dirty deeds may be dragged into the light and become public knowledge, but we're hiding behind this curtain of mystery by saying, look, this case is still open. We cannot tell the public what was going on. We cannot tell you what our findings were here. So when we get to all of these little pieces of information that you go, is this something here? Who buys two tanks of gas? That would imply that, that he is traveling with somebody or somebody's following him or, or what have you, right? It could imply a whole different set of theories, but yet we don't have law enforcement that will tell us, yes, that's exactly what happened. It's like we said, they seem to just kind of forget about it or not mention it or downplay this second gas purchase. So does that mean that they found out that it wasn't true or that it is true and they just don't want us to know about it for some reason? The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Everyone is still talking about Monopoly Go for a good reason. It is an absolute hit. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Like countless crazy tournaments, you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Or timed events, offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums. Delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches. Unique playing pieces and so much more. The verdict is in. With Monopoly Go, there's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now free on the App Store and Google Play. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, 
Thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Welcome back. It's always great when it gets heated here in the garage. Hold on. Crank up the AC. Crank up the AC. It's snowing in April. (laughs) I don't know if you want me to say this or not, but I'm going to anyway. Today is the captain's birthday, so hit him up on Twitter with well wishes. Everybody wish the captain a very happy, happy birthday. But only on Twitter, not on Instagram or TikTok. That's right. He's only celebrating on Twitter. (laughs) Captain, I wish you a very happy birthday and many more, and and a, hopefully a celebration is lined up for this weekend. Well, the thing is, is that Nick is mean and is making me work on my birthday. <laughs> <laughs> I quit here at the garage. We do not take birthdays off. In fact, right. we work extra long days. Well, happy birthday to everybody out there, and uh, cheers, mates. Cheers. We're not done with the movements here that night, Captain. Because at 3.30 a.m., we have Jonathan stopping at the Peter J. Camille, I hope I got that right, service plaza to buy bottled water. This sighting is not 100% certain. And to be honest with you, I think that this is just a situation of somebody trying to help out. Hey, I think I saw him that night. We don't have his credit card or debit card to confirm that he was there. And the other thing, too, is... Based off of what we know, and again, there are some missing 
things here in his timeline, but this place seems to be too far from the previous stop for the timing to be correct for him to be there at 3.30. It just doesn't line up, but I wanted to include it. Then we have at 4.04 a.m., his car left the Pennsylvania Turnpike at exit 286. This is the Reading-Lancaster interchange. A paper toll ticket was turned into the toll collector, even though, again, Jonathan's car has that easy pass. What's really interesting here, though, Captain, is there's blood on this paper toll ticket that's turned in. Hmm. We run some tests, and guess what? It's Jonathan's blood on that toll ticket. So we know, we don't know what's going on that night, but we do know one thing for certain. By 4.04 a.m., he's been injured at this point. He's bleeding at this point. But possibly makes sense with the easy pass that it doesn't work in that location, so he would have to use a ticket. Yeah, so per one study on the case, the exit drops drivers into a small, like well-lit strip of all-night gas stations and motels. Investigators visited all of them and found no leads. They couldn't find anybody to say, hey, we saw Jonathan here or we spoke with him. The lights quickly disappear as the road winds into that Amish country area. This is a Brecknock Township where later his lifeless body will be found. They believe that at 4.05 a.m., Jonathan was alive when his car entered the parking lot and then pulled up to that creek, right? So he goes he goes up near this business, then off the road, and then down to that creek. Again, we don't know who's driving, but his body is found at 5.30 a.m. So there's not a whole lot of time between 4.04 a.m., when his blood is turned in on a toll, to a toll collector on a toll ticket, and then an hour and less than a half later, his body, his lifeless body is discovered face down in that shallow creek. Well, the more I read about this case this week, the more research I did, the more I couldn't believe that this isn't one of the biggest cases on the internet. It's beyond bizarre. It's beyond fascinating. And let me read this. This comes from the Post newspaper because they they wrote it much better than I could. And I think it, it really sums up the driving and the movements from that night. It says, investigators took special note of the gaps in the timeline when Jonathan's location and activities are unknown. Of particular interest, they said, are two gaps. The timeline shows that Luna used his debit card at a toll plaza in Newark, Delaware, at 12.57 a.m., and then turned into the New Jersey Turnpike at exit 6A at 2.37 a.m. Driving that distance would take about 40 minutes, which leaves an hour unaccounted for, they said. In addition, they are interested in the period from when he left the Turnpike at 4.04 a.m., and when his body was discovered at 5.30 a.m. So some big gaps, and I like that they're pointing out to us, these are the times that we are very concerned about. These are the times that we know we need to know more about what was going on that night or who may have been with Jonathan Luna. The gaps are interesting because Jonathan could have met up with someone, or maybe he stopped somewhere that wasn't recorded 
and he didn't use his credit card. Something that's very interesting to me in this case is his location because we know that he's far away from his city, but but the route doesn't make a lot of sense. It's not like if I was going to go to Cleveland, I just take 71 all the way up there. But if I took different roads than 71, you'd question why. Yeah, and this, per their words, is referred to as far from the most direct route from Baltimore to Lancaster County. So that's why they're interested in his movements and, in particular, that route. Captain, this is going to take us to December 2nd, 2004. So we're a year out from Jonathan's death. Yeah. This is when the FBI, the Baltimore FBI office, released a statement concluding because keep in mind the the one of the items that has been highly debated in this case over the years is was he alone or was he traveling with someone or was he already abducted during the course of this this crazy drive that seems to make no sense to anybody but at the year mark we have the FBI that are announcing that from the time he left the courthouse office to the time his body was found, that he was alone, that their findings are that he was alone. Now, it's not real clear how they can be so certain of this, given the gaps in the timeline and the lack of eyewitnesses and surveillance footage, but this would be the FBI story for the duration of the investigation. So for the rest of the days, they're going to say, we figured out at some point he was alone for that entire trip from the time he left the courthouse to the time that his body was found. And that's our story. And we're sticking to it. In fact, on the 10th year anniversary, the FBI agent in charge of the investigation, April Brooks, told newspapers, we're certain that there was no evidence to show he was with anybody after he left the courthouse. Okay, I get that. But to me, it, there's a very big difference between saying there's no evidence to show that he was with anybody after he left the courthouse to saying he was alone that entire time. Those are two very different statements to me. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, they're so different that in, one of them could be true and the other one could be completely false. Right. There, you have no evidence that anybody was with him. Well, let's not go out of our way to say he was absolutely alone from the time he left the courthouse to the time his body was found. Then how is he then how is he getting these marks on his hands? What what they are implying is that they are implying that their investigation concluded with him having committed suicide. And that it was ultimately ruled a homicide to begin with, but they didn't have all the information. FBI decides he was alone, so it must have been a suicide. And they, they're they not going out of their way to say that it was a suicide. They're just saying, hey, he was alone. They're implying that, look, we don't need to be looking for his killer because he killed himself. But then again, here's where we have a big problem. They've never closed the case. Right. And then you have to wonder, well, is it convenient for them that the case remains open so that they don't have to disclose any of this information. Well, why would they not want to disclose any information? Well, maybe right. they were up to no good. So it's one of those things where it's it's 
It's like a dog chasing its tail. It just keeps going around and around and around and around. Every question brings up another question. Every question brings up another question and so on and so forth. And here we're sitting all these years later with what I believe to be a murder and it's unsolved. And let's not forget, ultimately in the beginning, this was ruled a homicide and the coroners have stuck with that ruling. Yeah, and the frustrating thing for me is if you're so sure, if law enforcement is so sure that this is a suicide, then close the case and let that case file be open to the public. Yeah. And let the public look into it. But they don't want to do that because maybe there's some errors there. Maybe there's maybe people didn't cross the T's and dot their I's. So the first thing that people are going to say, well, if this man was stabbed or had these many puncture wounds, well, where is the weapon? If if he killed himself, you would have found the weapon at the scene. Well, they didn't, and we know that. However, in February of 2004, they did a re, they did a recanvassing of that area of where Luna's body was found. When they recanvassed the area months later, now investigators are saying, "Well, we found a penknife that we believe caused the wounds that killed Jonathan Luna." They also said that investigators believe the pocket knife is the one that Jonathan Luna regularly carried with him. So they're just assuming that this guy is driving and then stabbing himself in the hands and 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 other parts of his body. Right. So th- this is where things get really this is where things get really dicey. So obviously we have the murder slash suicide question mark argument. But then we have a different version of that that kind of falls somewhere in between, right? So it's not murder. It wasn't suicide. These may be self-inflicted wounds, and he didn't ultimately plan to kill himself, but did too much damage and accidentally killed himself. And we're going to get into that in a minute. But before we do, I do want to make sure that we bring up, while we're on the timeline here, in March of 2004... We have, this is the case is now three months old. This is after they find the pen knife. It's no closer to being solved. Obviously, there's some kind of schism amongst the investigators of what actually happened here, murder or suicide. That's not helping the investigation. But the Washington Post summed it up very nicely, saying authorities announced a $100,000 reward in the unsolved death of a federal prosecutor, this Jonathan P. Luna, admitting publicly for the first time that 13 weeks of investigation had not determined whether it was a homicide or a suicide. Seems like a lot of money to be offered if you're, if it's, if the FBI is really leaning toward the suicide angle here. Yeah. Investigators were seeking information from anyone who may have had contact with Mr. Luna, anyone who may have seen Mr. Luna or his vehicle. So we've already kind of debated this, murder or suicide thing and it's it's the fbi's stance that he killed himself it's the coroner's stance that it was a homicide yeah and even though that these autopsy reports haven't been released to the public both of these doctors have been vocal in in public's eyes and and given their opinions and thoughts on this matter so let's get into this suicide gone wrong theory This is an interesting angle because this is a theory that doesn't appear in most of the cases that we discuss here in the garage. So others weren't taking a side on suicide or murder more, a little more down the middle, so to speak. 
They're formulating a theory that Jonathan, under financial pressure or stressed out about his job and facing possible accusations about the missing money and a polygraph and all the stress that comes with that, tried to stage a scene in which he would appear to have been kidnapped and attacked. This getting him out of court the next morning, maybe getting out of the future polygraph test and getting him sympathy from his colleagues and, you know, others involved in the missing money investigation. At the very least, this would buy him some time to deal with some of this if people fell for it. And it wouldn't be the first time in the garage that somebody staged a crime that we would later figure out, hey, this isn't what they said it was. It wasn't what it appeared to be. We had the Sherry Papini case, which, I mean, forget about that one. So the idea here, Captain, is that he tried to stage an attack and a kidnapping and wanted it to be severe enough, or at least his wounds to appear to be severe enough that everybody would buy it by the story and that in the process of harming himself that he accidentally nicked that artery which caused which would cause his death but before it did before he bled out he fell into the shallow water went unconscious and died this doesn't seem like it's all adding up correctly it doesn't seem super plausible, but I'm going to throw this in here. This was from a web sleuther. The username is Falcon 500. Old Falcon. And this person, Falcon 500, is claiming or or is verified to be a law enforcement detective. I'm, I'm a little uncertain, unclear how that, that was verified, but that's what it says. So let's go with that. This individual, this web sleuther, believes that Jonathan likely did steal the $36,000 that he wanted to deflect suspicion away from himself, so he thought up this scheme where he would be found in his car and then claim that he had been kidnapped from his office. He made sure that he visited several spots where the presence of his car would be documented. His wounds were superficial, and it's likely that he became confused, got out of his car, and then fell into the creek and drowned. So that's how one person puts it that this might have worked out 36 punch wounds is a lot yeah again it doesn't make a lot of sense and it, it's um uh, the the two cans of gas yeah the two tanks of gas two tanks of gas and then you also wonder well well did he fill up his tank and then did he have a, a spare gas can in the back that he filled up or was somebody traveling with him yeah i mean that's what that's where my mind goes that somebody's traveling with him and if he's filling up gas for the other person, it almost implies to me, well, he's not been abducted unless he has been abducted. Somebody's holding him in his car and they have another car tailing them. It's it's all very confusing. And then again, we keep have to come back to the idea of this information is not an open book. It's not released to the public. And when you ask specific questions in this case, you're shot down by the old, oh, we're going to hide behind the idea of it's an open investigation. But everything in your investigation, as far as you're telling us or implying to us, is that you have decided this was a suicide, and so we're not technically actively investigating anything. Well, suicide to me seems like it makes zero sense. My only caveat with that is what the coroner 
you know, what the coroners are saying. They're saying there was an artery that was hit. So if you're trying to stage this scene to look like possibly you were abducted or possibly you were attacked or tortured and then you you end up stabbing yourself in the wrong location, I could see that as a possibility. I right. Mean, because we have evidence of, of a puncture and a main artery. But what we know of Jonathan Luna, and again, maybe he had some kind of break. We don't know. But what we do know about him leading up to that point, this kind of idea of, oh, I'm going to stage an abduction and an attack to the point where I, I'm unconscious when they find me, or I have, my wounds are so severe that I can claim I don't remember anything, or I don't know who my attacker was, or make, make it up who attacked him. It seems incredibly sloppy and dumb based off of what we know of this guy. It seems too sloppy for, for it to be his plan. It seems too dumb to me for it to be his plan. But again, we can't rule anything out because we're not given. Yeah, but it'd be dumb to steal money. Yes, it'd that is be, true. You know, it's it's dumb to get that far behind in debt. I see with his debt, I actually don't see an issue with that. It is a lot of money, but having a young family and you're taking care of mom and dad, I mean, right. basically his salary and his wife's salary is providing for three generations. Yeah. I don't see it as being again, that, that much of debt, but maybe that was for him to Let, the point where that, or, or what, what else was he involved in that? We just don't know. There could be debts that aren't on books. Let's spin this missing money thing. A different way, right? We already have people pointing out the misinformation or the spin factor on the information that's coming out in this case. So let's do a little spinning of our own here, shall we? With the missing money, so many people point out that if he did steal the money, then suicide makes sense. Or if he did commit suicide, well, it was probably because he was guilty of stealing the money. Those two things seem to be kind of walking together arm in arm, but let's spin it a different way. What if he didn't steal the money? What if he didn't commit suicide? What if his apprehension, if he had any, and it doesn't seem like he had any about taking the polygraph or doing the interview about the missing money. If you want to suspect that, well, you should suspect it two ways. Either he didn't want to talk with people because he stole the money. Or what about this? What if he's being accused or believes that he's being accused of stealing money or doing something that he did not d do, and he had suspicions of his own or information of his own that might lead you to the person responsible for stealing that money? There might be somebody that would have wanted to shut him up in that regard. Like I said, it becomes very confusing because this guy's whole career, he was surrounded by people that would be capable of doing this. Yes. And I just wonder, I, I cannot make any sense of his movements that night. And I've tried for the past 10 days and I'm, I'm here to tell you, I can't do it. I've, I've tried to figure out do, do the movements at night point more towards an abduction or to him not being in control of his movements. Do they point more toward somebody's traveling with him that he thought was, you know, a friend or on his side? Do the movements point to, him trying to cover something up or meet with somebody. I can't make heads or tails of his movements that night enough to decide on where I fall 
as far as the theories go about what he was up to that night or if he was even in control of his own movements. There was a 2007 inquest request. Yes. So the way that this works here, Captain, is in January of 2007, Jonathan Luna's parents formally requested that the Lancaster County coroner conduct an inquest into Jonathan's death. So the coroner declined to do so. And then we have private investigator Ed Martino, who was hired by Jonathan's friend. In fact, it was the best man at Jonathan's wedding. Private I Martino dug into the case for months and then believed firmly that Jonathan was murdered because of his work, specifically his work with the FBI. He believed that the agency had very suspiciously shut down the death investigation. He said his investigation had not linked Jonathan to any risky or suspicious behavior, and he believed that the FBI was trying to change the narrative. He said, quote, they used to call it disinformation. They call it spin today. In 2009, there was reason to believe that there was an active grand jury investigation into the unsolved Luna case. Again, this is interesting to me because I keep pointing out that they could be hiding behind this idea of we can't give you any information because it's an active investigation. But then at the same time, everything that the FBI is telling us and everything that the FBI seems to be doing behind the scenes indicates that they've ended their investigation. They've decided that it was suicide so much so that they tried to get the coroners to change their ruling, retroactively change their ruling to suicide. The coroners say, no, we're not going to. And now the FBI doesn't seem to actually have an active investigation because they've determined it to be suicide, can't get the coroners to change their minds. And so we don't have an active investigation. However, here, when you start sniffing around, it looks like there might be an active investigation because in 2009, and this is evidence of such, there was a possible existence of a federal grand jury investigation And look, these are supposed to be secret, right? But at that time, the Lancaster County Assistant District Attorney, Susan Moyer, wrote a letter to an author. So there's this author, William Kiesling, who has come up with this big kind of conspiracy theory that involves the informant and the FBI being involved in Jonathan Luna's murder. And he doesn't specifically name anybody, as far as I'm aware. I've not read his book But in 2009, this author is trying to get his hands on the autopsy to write his book. Well, the district attorney, the assistant district attorney, writes him a formal letter saying, I can't give you the autopsy because we have an open federal grand jury investigation. So what is it? Is is this case active and we can't tell you anything because it's an active case? Or is it not active and nobody's actually investigating it? Somebody's decided it's a suicide and the coroners will not change their ruling. It's a very murky situation. And unfortunately, I don't feel like we are getting any clear answers from these these bigger agencies that we are to trust with our safety. Well, one of the issues with a case like this is it, it's where do you lean? Do you lean towards suicide or murder. My problem with suicide is the evidence that he was in the backseat of his car at some point 
meaning was somebody driving. This really becomes a red light case for me and, and one that I'll be thinking about constantly and probably one that I'll randomly Google for more information because it's uh, it's beyond bizarre. Right, and this case really is a mess of leaked information, misinformation, backtracking, walking things back, botched crime scenes, internal investigations. I mean, it's a very complicated case. It's a very complicated story, and we know that all of that does does not help. It certainly muddies the waters big time in this case, and in any other case that we've looked into in fact, when you have this much going on and this much confusion, rarely do you see an answer, a result, uh, an arrest, somebody being convicted. Personally, I lean toward the side of murder. I, I believe that somebody killed him. I don't. I, I, I still believe that it, it has something to do either directly tied to or loosely tied to his work something he was involved in, something that he was aware of that, that knew about. I can say this. It was on purpose that we bring up Detective Sean Souter's death in the trailer because that case is just as confusing as this one, and they both took place in Baltimore. Ray Rivera's case is a little bit different. It seems like all the confusion is really on, on his end and what what was going on in his his world. Right. But again, I'm a blue blood and I have I have the backs of the women and men that that choose to go into that line of work and that do that job and do it well and do a good job of it. Every agency has had its black eyes over the years. But the Baltimore Police Department, especially during this time frame, there's been so much concern about corruption and things that were going on behind the scenes and a lot of it involves money and drugs. And here we have a situation that seems to involve or might involve money that people in that line of work may have had access to, and it disappeared. And now we have people being called into question. And I tell you what, believe you me, if I was accused of stealing money to the point where I'm I'm maybe not directly being accused, but to the point where I have to sit down and have meetings about it and take a polygraph test. If I have an idea or a suspicion of who I think took it or who I think is responsible, you better believe that I'm going to make that well known to the people that are interviewing me, my suspicions. You have yours, I got mine, and I'm not afraid to tell you what I think. One case that we didn't bring up that I'm sure our listeners are going, this reminds me of that other case. Right. Well, it's the case of Ray Greeker who disappeared in April of 1995. He was a prosecutor as well. Now, what's funny about the idea of that popping into people's heads when they hear this story is law enforcement, despite admittedly investigating similarities in the cases, they have denied any possible link between what happened to Jonathan Luna and the disappearance of Ray Greeker. There seemed to have been thought there that they could possibly be linked because it was investigated. Now, I'm not sitting here with a high confidence level of knowing what happened to Ray or ever finding out what truly happened to Jonathan Luna. I hope and pray that we do. Again, I think that he was murdered. 
I think that something happened, and I cannot explain why he left his office there that night. He should have stayed and finished. Can't explain why he left his phone. Can't explain why he left his phone. There have been people that said that he couldn't drive without his glasses. I purposely did not include that when we were discussing the items left at his office because that seems highly debatable. Highly debatable because we we know that the glasses were left behind. However, that car did a lot of moving that night. So somebody drove it and somebody didn't have any problem driving it a hundred miles away. So if he was in fact driving his own car, then we know that that's not the case, that he had no problems driving without those glasses. This is a case, again, too many questions, too many things left unsatisfied for us to come up with a great idea of what really happened here. Can't thank you guys enough for joining us here in the garage. We love your smell. We love, we love your smell. What can we say? If you're digging any of the music for the shows, you can find it all for free on Apple Music or Spotify. Just search True Crime Garage and it'll come up under Music Artists. And you can follow us there on Spotify. And like I said, it's all for free. Colonel, do we have any recommended reading for the beautiful listeners? We're going to go with some recommended listening this week here, Captain. We are recommending one of our favorite shows, the True Murder Podcast. Longtime listeners of our show will know that we have had the host of True Murder, Dan Sapansky, on our show a couple of times. We like to call Dan the godfather of true crime podcasts. Check out his show, True Murder. In particular, you want to check out last Tuesday's show. This is when Dan interviewed LaDonna Humphrey, who is an expert on the still unsolved Melissa Witt murder case. We had LaDonna on our show to discuss Missy Witt's case as well, but it really made my day, Captain, when I was listening to LaDonna, who told Dan that after coming on our show, the Melissa Witt Facebook page blew up, and Dan referred to us as his friends over at True Crime Garage. So thank you both, True Murder and LaDonna Humphrey, for the shout-out and the kind words. That's True Murder Podcast, Tuesday, April 12th, The Girl I Never Knew with LaDonna Humphrey. And until next week, be good, be kind, and don't litter. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I highly recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com garage today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash garage. This show is proudly sponsored by BetterHelp. Check out BetterHelp.com slash garage today. 